You're listening to Resident Advisors Exchange. I'm Martha. Thank you so much for joining us. This week, we're back with Cadulla Burrows. You may have heard them on the exchange last week interviewing Susie Analog. If not, I highly recommend that you check that out at some point. Susie features in this week's programme too, which explores the term Afrofuturism. Kadala is about to introduce the programme in greater detail. All I'll say for now is that there are links in the description of this podcast, all the amazing creatives featured if you want to find out more about them. Right now, though, I will hand you over to Kadala. I'm wishing you a wonderful listen. This past Juneteenth, I helped bring to life a moment in between, a digital pan-African celebration of black liberation. The event was the final chapter in the Guild of Future Architects Traveling the Interstitium Transmedia Art Series, a collection of XR pieces by visionary black artists paying homage to the oracle of Afrofuturism herself, Octavia Butler. A moment in between quickly expanded beyond showcasing those original works to a decentralized block party co-created by black artists and activists based all over the world, all held within Common, a digital club venue designed to generate financial support for artists. A moment in between sparked conversations around science fiction, electronic music, community, the legacy of Octavia Butler, and the question of what defines Afrofuturism, all of which I was keen to keep exploring after the event wrapped. On this episode of The Exchange, we'll be hearing from musicians Susie Analog and Jackie Queens, plus thinkers Nama Gadheri and Mia Amani Harrison, four artists and cultural critics that helped make a moment in between possible, to get their insights on the state of Afrofuturism today. You'll also be hearing narration by me, the primary steward of the event, transdisciplinary artist and creative technologist, Kadala Burroughs. My name is Susie Analog. I'm a producer, songwriter, and creator of Never Normal Records, and I'm based in Miami, USA. I first met Susie in July of 2020, as the United States grappled with the reckoning around police brutality, mass incarceration, and other forms of systemic anti-Blackness that drove activists into the streets in spite of a raging pandemic. In this time where we needed solidarity more than ever, but often found ourselves making a choice between social distancing and in-person activism, Susie curated Black Liberation Mindset in one of the very first editions of Common, creating a perfect solution for those that needed to be connected with other activists, but couldn't risk being on the physical front lines. The room was a 24-hour lineup of archival footage from Black activists throughout the ages shaping their futures, our present, through their art and discourse. So as soon as a moment in between expanded beyond the Guild's curated content, she was one of the first people on my list to reach out to. Ultimately, she brought the concept back alongside a new planet, showcasing the work of the artists of Never Normal Sound System. I feel like I've had this innate connection with the concept of Afrofuturism. When I heard the word, I was like, yeah, okay. This is like, (laughs) this is day to day. Like, this is how we feel because um, from my purview, Black people globally have always been saying what is next and what's necessary and innovating um, around challenges. And that's, if you innovate around a challenge, that's because you're trying to get past it. That's the future. You're trying to get somewhere. That's the future right there. So um, 
by default of you know coming from a black community with innovation being the center of our um our self-determination um afrofuturism is like it's like black it's just being black to me and i think that in art form when it's considered for art forms like science fiction of course and um other other genres i like to i like to question if it's being like seen as afrofuturistic because some of the people who are considering it to be afrofuturistic aren't thinking that we think about the future like <laughs> you know like they're like this is the future black stuff and then this is the black like it's all future black stuff really um and aesthetically, there are, you know, visual aesthetics as far as the designs inspired by space and, and silver and like there's, there's sorts of aesthetics, of decorative aesthetics that feel more futuristic based on what we know now. But I think as Afrofuturists, it's up to us to define what Afrofuturism means for beyond what we know now like is it always going to be like you know up in space and silver jewelry and like you know bright colors and all these things I, I think it's always going to be um aspects of blackness just for the rest of the world Afrofuturism as a term was coined in the 1994 essay black to the future to describe black American science fiction literature but most agree that the history of the movement began much earlier and in the realm of music, with Sun Ra and June Tyson, P-Funk, Detroit Techno, Lee Scratch Perry, even Robert Johnson as early as the 1930s. However, the term wasn't really cemented into the mainstream until the 2018 big-budget MCU release of Black Panther, which has caused Afrofuturism to be seen in a new light, drawing both praise and criticism from folks across the spectrum pushing back against the label including musicians like Gerald Donald of Drexia, one of the most often cited electronic music duos when it comes to Afrofuturism, who has shrugged off the political implications of the Afro-prefix, or black people around the world who are sick and tired of Afrofuturism reducing Africanness and indigeneity to a convenient aesthetic without actually valuing African lived experience. I think Afrofuturism is, is more innate, um, but it's studied and it's spoken about underneath a lens that also might have, um, you know, like implications, like, you know, education-based implications and, and higher level learning-based implications. And it's, I don't think it should be just relegated to um, that kind of, like making it about industry is Afrofuturism is a way of life. And it has to be called Afrofuturism because the systems of oppression are set up for us to not survive into the future. So when we talk about Afrofuturism, it's something that exists because we just aren't assumed to make it <laughs> and, and so I love to talk about it but it's funny because I, I actually had a conversation with um, someone in this 
business incubator I'm a part of right now with Never Normal. And they are actually um, a fund, like they fund organizations and they say, yeah, we're really interested in Afrofuturism has been coming up and we're really interested to talk more about that and, and hear more about that. And I'm like, what do y'all want to hear? Like in my head, I'm like, what do they want to hear about? What are we going to discuss? Like, NASA, like what are we discussing when we say Afrofuturism? However, our last collection from Never Normal was called Black Future. Neota Amara is the key Swahili for a bright star. Um, I got more familiar with Swahili while I was in East Africa. And it's not even spoken like in Kenya, they, they definitely speak key Swahili a lot. Um, in Uganda, not as much. Um, but I asked different speakers from Tanzania, from Kenya, from Uganda. I'm like, what if you wanted to say someone is like, their future is bright? Like, what would I say? And and it came down to people saying like, oh, like bright star, like they're a bright star, like their their future is bright because they're a bright star. And I said that's literal, and I love it. And it, it's and so is Neota Amara, and that was our last collection, our first collection from Never Normal. And we were able to do the launch party on one of the commons. Um, there was no real, you know, events at that time either, but it was also really great because we got to share um, a stream of the artists on common. And um, the artists were Heavy from Chicago, Rafia from Brooklyn, um, and No Eyes from Atlanta, and they all make futuristic music, but no one quite like dresses like a cosmonaut. Like, like, we don't, we, we might do things um, aesthetically like dye our hair, bright colors and do things. And that itself is futuristic, right? Because where did we get bleach and where did we get dye? And like these, these inventions that are just so like simple to think of as far as self-expression, I think that is really what it comes down to for Afrofuturism, like on one level, it's about how we persist into the future as Black people. But then on the other level, it's about how we are able to more vastly express ourselves as Black people up against all odds and also while having more resources and more options and more technology than ever before. Um, so the artists that I work with, I feel like truly embody um, the mindset of liberating their self-expression by utilizing these things like technology and in their self-expression to push um, against like these normative concepts of what blackness could be based on the systemic roles and the systemic guidelines that have been set in place over time it's like we are always looking to free ourselves from the trap of of those normatives and so so yeah when it comes to like what is afrofuturism like it's a bunch of things but i think it comes down to self-determination self-preservation and self-expression um and from individuals to black groups as a whole diasporically and on the content um and especially when it comes to queerness i think that um afrofuturism is an important vehicle uh, with 
just directly tied into queerness because um, on the continent and in some even in places where technically it's legal to you know be exactly who you are, um, it still is persecuted to be queer um, and and societally like you aren't afforded the same level of ease and and freedom and resources um, just because you observe like you know your own vibe when it comes to you know your fluidity and um i think for that reason afrofuturism as an aesthetic will always be closely linked to queerness because um as it stands i mean if you look on the continent we're still struggling <laughs> with with a uh, queer um, respects and and just uh, systemic validity. <laughs> like to say to put it, yeah, I don't want to say anything too, you know, too much because I I do actively like work with artists who live in countries where it is illegal to be queer, and so um, I you know I don't agree. I don't agree, and and we we still have to look towards how we can persevere through that, and and also the vehicle. I I think Afrofuturism is a vehicle. I don't think it's an aesthetic alone. I don't think it's a genre. I think it's a vehicle. Um, and when you take the vehicle and you like put ideas inside of it, like oh queerness, oh like um self-expression and oh like you can even put literature inside of this thing and drive it to where it needs to go to to reach to the future um so when i think about it like that uh, i know that it serves a, a really great purpose for black people and and more black people can really look into it to find sources of inspiration at times where things like maybe faith like you know religion and things maybe sometimes that doesn't leave you with the answers and you what do you have to look to you if you have to look towards the future somehow you need to put it inside this vehicle to be able to do so um super important i think wow that's a, a beautiful beautiful answer afrofuturism is a really imperfect term for what we're dealing with like afrofuturism is blackness blackness is afrofuturist and like i feel like you did a, a really beautiful job of kind of like taking that challenge of how do we still acknowledge the importance of afrofuturism as a, as a vehicle that exists and like how do we define that while also saying well you know it isn't perfect and it we we want better language to describe this thing but here is how i would talk about it you know i make these notes for myself as i go because i'm like you know what? <laughs> but I do think about this stuff every day. So, so I'm really, thank you for the opportunity to even just discuss. Susie is not alone in her concerns about the limits of Afrofuturism as a term. The term itself has been seen as imperfect from its very inception. In the original Black to the Future text, where Mark Derry is credited with coining the term, the full excerpt reads, quote, Speculative fiction that treats African-American themes and addresses African-American concerns in the context of 20th century technoculture 
might want for a better term be called Afrofuturism, end quote. And those are just the words of the author of the article, which is cited as coining the term, an origin that is already fraught with controversy, for activists and cultural critics frustrated that the label was coined by a white academic in an essay essentially asking why black folks don't produce more science fiction while almost exclusively focusing on black American literature. Most historians of the Afrofuture regard the art form as having its roots in the sonic realms, namely in music. This is something John Acomfra's pivotal 1990s documentary, The Last Angel of History, helped set the record straight on. The data thief knows that the first touch with science fiction came when Africans began playing drums to cover distance. Water carried the sound of the drums, and sound covered the distance between the old and the new world. And bringing it back to Butler's relationship to the term, in her own time, she was known for shrugging off labels applied to her work. Having once responded to an interviewer, I don't recall ever having wanted desperately to be a black woman science fiction writer. I wanted to be a writer. So if there appears to be consensus around the need for expanded language around this Afrofuturist term, who better to speak to than Naema Gadheri, one of the world stewards of Afropresentism? Naema joined us on the Telebanga planet as a speaker in the Afro Now a self-moderated discussion between themselves, transdisciplinary artist and Afro-Nowist Stephanie Dinkins, filmmaker and producer Keisha Knight, and poet Sharice Francis. The day I sat down to speak with Nama, it seemed as though all our angels and arishas must have been out in full force. Turning on our phones after our hours-long conversation, we found a world on standby as Facebook and all its subsidiaries experienced the longest outage in the company's history. Over the backdrop of this great blip, we spoke about presence, Afropresentism, and its mothership connection to the future. So my name is Nama Givere, um, and I'm a guerrilla theorist and artist in blooming. And my work is really curated around my own coming of age on the internet and the effects of that um, on me spiritually, psychologically, socially, politically, and um, really looking at love as a foundation and like ongoing theme um, in this process of coming of age and blooming into the world. I was born in Nairobi, Kenya, in South B. Um, and I was raised in Colorado, so in the suburbs of Denver, outside of Denver, in a city called Lakewood. Um, and I currently live in Brooklyn, New York, in Bed-Stuy. And in general, like I always say, I'm based in the digital diaspora because in each of those places, the internet has been my very tumultuous home. And so I, I very much so just live in this kind of interesting intersection of like cybernetic black diasporic queer culture. Could you expand a little bit on like what, what you would consider like your main focus in the research that you're doing as well as like what brought you into that work? Yeah, so I'd say the main focus of my work is digital diasporic culture. Um, and as a part of that, also just thinking about what it means to live in an algorithmic universe. Um, there's this incredible person I'm connected with on Twitter called Harmon Holiday, who talks about the idea of algorithmic debris, electromagnetic algorithmic debris. And so I'd say that my work um, thinks about what love and indigeneity looks like in a time of algorithmic debris. And the main kind of themes or, or strands of my guerrilla theory 
are Afropresentism, um, which we'll hopefully we'll be getting into today. Um, data healing, which is kind of this experimental practice that looks at the intersections between technology, nature, and spirituality. Um, and re-indigenization, which is kind of this framework I think about as an evolution of decolonization. So thinking about what happens after we decolonize, what do we do then? Um, but all of those are tied under the umbrella of guerrilla theory, which is a framework that I have to up, that upholds conversation as the highest mode of speculation. So looking at theory that is fugitive of academia and like really rooted in lived experiences and in the exchange of those experiences in the most quotidian of ways. I think that that framework of, of thinking of things from a guerrilla theory perspective is part of what really attracted me to your work originally. Mm -hmm. uh, would you mind expanding a little bit on this idea of guerrilla theory a little bit? Yeah. More for, yeah. So guerrilla theory was really born out of my own trauma and frustration with conventional academia, the space which is deeply elitist and classist and um, transphobic, all of the things, right? Um, and... I started to realize that some of the most profound illuminations that I had were in conversations, be it with my mother or my grandmother or my friend, or in pillow talk or just like with someone like in the bodega, right? And I was like, what does it look like to just say that this is the highest mode of, of theory, of theorizing, that like the conversations that we have with each other in our most intimate relationships are the blueprint for intellectual like development and co-development. Um, and it's also like deeply interwoven with the griot tradition, which emerges out of West Africa, of oral storytelling. And um, as somebody who, when I was in college, I was doing African studies, something that always deeply troubled me was the lack of archives that we have towards our own cultures. Like the archives that you think about related to Africanity are tied to slavery, right? We don't have like storybooks. We don't have 14th century, you know, like documentations of certain kingdoms. I mean, there is some of that that exists, I'm sure, but it's not as extensive as like the Eurocentric kind of canon and archive. And on the one hand, that is a sort site of heartache, and on the other hand, I think it um, it shows the richness of our oral traditions. And so, for me, guerrilla theory is a way of participating in intellectual production in a way that is aligned to my ancestral specificity as an indigenous African person. The data thief knows that the first touch with science fiction came when Africans began playing drums to cover distance. <laughs> Water carried the sound of the drums, and sound covered the distance between the old and the new world. Well, I kind of wanted to find out if you could describe the origins of Afropresentism. Yeah, so back in 2017, I was in Ghana for Chale Wote, which is the largest street art fair in West Africa. Um, as part of this Tastemakers Africa tour, at the time I was working with Tastemakers, um, which is an African travel startup. And I was having this conversation with a friend of mine, this curator, Nana Sequadwo. We were talking, you know, everyone's always saying, Africa's the future, Africa's the future. We're like, no, Africa's the present, right? I'm seeing it here in these streets. It was like Instagram come to life in this art fair. I was seeing people I'd been connected with on the internet for years and just like watching the physical manifestations of that. So from that conversation, I was like, it's not about Afrofuturism, it's actually Afropresentism, right? And that word kind of just dawned on us in this conversation and opened so much up um, 
to us in experiencing that space. And so after that, I began to kind of do more research and theorize more around it. Um, yeah, thinking it was really born out of my also my research around this hashtag digital diaspora. So I'd been traveling around the continent and the diaspora doing research on how Afro diasporic creatives were articulating new identities on and through new media. And um, so as much as I hate to admit it, Instagram was a big factor in the birth of Afro-presentism as, as a term and, and idea because I was just experiencing the world in such new ways um, because of that platform at that time. Mm-hmm. So could you, could you describe uh, in your own words what Afro-presentism is? Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. so Afro-presentism has evolved a lot in, since it was first articulated in 2017. The earliest definition I have for it is a genre fusing archival, documentary, and fine arts on and through new media in the expression of an Afrofuturist lived reality. Um, so it's kind of the now. The, the Afrofuturism that we talk about is like now, happening now, right? Um, so that's the earliest definition. I think since then it's kind of evolved to being more than a genre or an aesthetic and really being a verb and a way of practicing. Um, I think about it as a somatic intervention, as a way of like reclaiming the present as the future in motion. Um, and so I'd say Afropresentism is a way of reclaiming our inheritances as descendants of survival and thinking about what to do with that inheritance in the here and now. Mm-hmm. And uh, so w- w- in, in, the, in this definition, I'm, I'm, uh, could you describe the importance of like, or why you've included Afro as a prefix when talking about Afro-presentism, you know? Yeah, I think for me, because it was born out of this digital diaspora research, specifically connecting with black people across the continent and the diaspora, it is a black genre. Um, Lately, I've kind of evolved to also just speaking about presentism in general. And I think for me, the trajectory of that is important because usually you'll get a genre, you'll get surrealism, you'll get modernism, and then the Afro is tacked on after. But if you think about it, blackness is the origins of all humanity, right? So what does it look like to have a genre that is an Afro-presentism genre that has as its sub-genres the less, you know, the the one that applies to people of all diasporas? Um, And... Yeah, it was Afro-presentism because I was in Ghana, because I'm Kenyan, because I'm black. <laughs> and so it, that's what it was born of. That It's actually really that simple, but there, there are layers to it. Yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love that, that framing, too, because it's like, for me, I feel like a lot of my work, even outside of like thinking about Afrofuturism, thinks about blackness not just as like, you know, like we being black people, but mm-hmm. like blackness in this cosmic like spiritual sense of like blackness is where we came from you know it's the it's it is the void before and after the womb and the tomb you know it is the blackness that we came from it's the black that we're going to eventually return to to me what i love about afro-presentism it feels like that embodied blackness that Mm. blackness of our lived reality right now Mm. you know what i mean in this moment in between those two spaces we're still black in between that but yes i love the way you put that i really love that from 
from the womb to the tomb. And that's something that Rashida Phillips and Black Quantum Futurism speak about a lot, this idea of the cosmos, blackness being a cosmic entity about black holes and the ways that blackness emerges in physics and astronomy. I think about Afropresentism as a technology, as an embodied technology and thinking about our DNA, right, as this like ultimate hard drive of information that we're able to journey through because it's our bloodline. And like in the process of journeying through that, we open the doors for other people to join us. And like it becomes this kind of collective song of, of, of journey. So I guess another question, you know, you know, com- coming to this this concept of like Afrofuturism, like what what relationship does Afropresentism have to Afrofuturism? Yeah, I always say Afrofuturism is the mothership vision from which Afropresentism was born. Like I remember watching The Last Angel of History by Jonah Comfra and Kodwo Eshun, and it was it's a seminal video essay of Afrofuturism, and they talk about this idea of the techno fossils, like that we are excavating techno fossils. To me, that's what I think about social media. I think about the practices of Afropresentist archivists online who are pulling images deep from the archives and fusing that with their own like lived documentary practices. So I just think about Afropresentism being like, okay, if Afrofuturism was being theorized in the late 1990s, early 2000s, the amount of like technological digital evolution that's happened between then and now has been it's like this wild accelerationism that has fast forwarded us to the future that these Afrofuturists were really dreaming about. Um, And at the same time, I would say there's some pretty critical distinctions. I always say that Afrofuturism is concerned with space. Afropresentism is concerned with Earth. And, you know, I think about the aesthetics of Afrofuturism being very metallic and silvery and space-like. You talk about the third dimension and the fourth dimension. Um, And I think about Afropresentism kind of taking that and trying to bring it back to the soil a bit. You know, Afropresentism in the 2020s, at least, is history turned digital, turned analog, turned earth again. It's this kind of rewinding back and this attempt to slow down time in ways that I think are a little bit distinctive to Afrofuturism, which tries to speed up time and envision this kind of distant horizon. Um, yeah. After the end of the world, don't you know that yet? After the end of the world, don't you know that yet? After the end of the world, don't you know that yet? The world has ended for black people time and time again for five centuries now. It's always ending for us. And that's something Kodwe Shun talks about with this foundational kind of Afrofuturism is that black people, black American people, black diasporic people are living in the estrangement and alienation that science fiction writers write about. And so to have an Octavia Butler writing Parable of the Sower, which opens up in 2024, 2025, to have that, you know, timeline kind of be existent for us it can be deeply dislocating and that's why I'm so interested in slowing down time, in presentism, in like sen- tuning into the sensations of the body, tuning into the breeze of the air and how it blows upon the trees, like allows us to have some sort of graceful transition. If we're going to keep encountering the end of the world, let it be joyous at least, you know, let us feel the soil on our feet, let us feel the sunlight and rejoice in that. And 
it's for me it feels like it's spiritual by necessity and it feels like an exercise in graceful mourning and it's very raw and i think this is where like the whole data healing thing comes in to play with afro presentism is because you know like i mentioned earlier indigenous americans um of turtle island speak about preparing for seven generations ahead like with the climate crisis it's very possible that in seven generations we'll just be earth we'll just be mycelia there might not be humans on earth and that's not a distant sci-fi thing it's become a 50 to 100 to however many years reality um and i think we're tasked with the emotional socio-political burden of making meaning of life within this sense of apocalypse and yeah it's just like we're living in it so just live in it if you can find the crossroads a crossroads this crossroads if you can make an archaeological dig into this crossroads you'll find fragments techno fossils and if you can put those elements those fragments together you'll find the code crack that code and you'll have the keys to your future you've got one clue and it's a phrase mothership connection Whereas we traveled the Astro Black with Sun Ra, P-Funk, and Lee Scratch Perry on Ark Motherships out into the far reaches of the galaxy, moving us through the third dimension, Octavia took us through fourth dimensional portals in time to spaces that looked more familiar. 2024, LA experiencing endemic homelessness beneath the city skies of fire season and a right-wing fascist running under the slogan, Make America Great Again. However, in this reality, we ran a bit ahead of schedule and the reboot slated for release around then under the newly consumer-tested tagline, Take America Back. One of the most illuminating parts of the Afro Now and my own conversation with Nama was the attention that they brought to the role of both aesthetics and practice to Afrofuturism. The term Afrofuturism often feels insufficient because the label mostly conjures in the mind's eye the sleek sparkle and shine of Uhura's station on the bridge of the Enterprise, while much of the art that is called Afrofuturist doesn't take place in the future, use time travel as a mechanic, nor does it make use of the aesthetics most closely associated with the term. What we experienced during a moment in between was a virtual happening that saw art currently labeled Afrofuturist as it exists today, in the fifth dimension. The event was a collection of collaborative explorations of parallel realities, of paracosms and multiverses, alongside conversations about presence in the present. A moment in between existed in a space where linear time was not recognized, instead replaced by Sankofa circles and quantum physical presentations about CPT. But if aesthetics are just the exterior of this mothership vehicle currently known as Afrofuturism, what actually connects all of this work? From Sun Ra's orchestra to Octavia's Earthseed, from the water worlds of Drexia to our very own moment in between? A firm grounding in black liberation practice. That's why I was so excited to speak with artivist Mia Amani Harrison, a fellow guild member whose work as a dream technologist sees dreaming not as an act of escapism, but as an underutilized tool in liberation. My name is Mia Amani Harrison. I am an interdisciplinary artist and conceptual creator. 
I also work within the frameworks of futurist thinking, sustainability, um, communal organizing, and dreaming as a site of liberation. So we met each other through the Guild of Future Architects, right? So could yeah. you talk a little bit about what that that organization is and you know how you got involved? So basically, I see the Guild of Future Architects like the X-Men of <laughs> collective change. <laughs> like we each have our superpowers and we're all trying to just imagine a new world where, you know, one superpower isn't a weakness and where we're actually looking at intersectional approaches to collective and sustainable change. And so I came in through being in the dream tech group because of course dreams. And I um, was actually brought in with Lori and Salix because they loved my, my approach to dreaming, which is a liberatory practice, right? And how can we make sure that regardless of where dream technology goes, that it is at its foundation looking at liberation being connected to the guild stuff, seeing the project and work that y'all were doing with, you know, Octavia's work, I just knew that's where I needed to be. So when you invited me to kind of, you know, imagine how dreaming might look in this kind of decentralized space, I was just like, oh, that would be great. It'd be cool to just have a conversation, right? Because I think that's a big part of it is we barely talk about our sleep or our dreams in general. And so just creating spaces where you could talk about dreams, where people can ask questions about dream technology, where we can share kind of tips or anecdotes, it's so helpful, especially for Black folks during Juneteenth, when it's about liberation, when it's about, you know, dreaming, I would say, in a more aspirational sense. And I was like, well, let's take it down um, to another level. Like, let's take it to the subconscious and imagine, you know, what, what liberatory what the liberation project might be in a, in a dreamscape or a dream site. Common up to that point had been primarily for music. And I felt like the, the space that you created like was the uh, embodiment of that, where it's a place where people could come and talk and there are octopi and like people in like interesting different configurations. And uh, that felt really cool with like Mozilla Hubs and everything. Um, no, it was such an honor to be able to host like that type of conversation and the dialogue and to have people um, that I've known across the span of my practice come and pop in and yeah, be able to kind of share their own intimate parts in relation to dreams. Cause I think, yeah, dreaming and discussing one's dreams is a very intimate practice. I think it's really an important moment and such an exciting moment to just have people and specifically like black folks come together and talk about their dreaming and, you know, white folks also who are allies who were coming in to kind of like give space and support, but not take up space was really cool. And to do it in that hub where, yeah, we were black folks in a space, but we were sea creatures too. And we could choose like how we moved through the space or didn't how we engaged in the space or didn't. So. I enjoyed it. Something that I'm interested in uh, with this guild conversation is I feel like, you know, part of what attracts me to the guild so much is that it feels very much like in the vein of 
of this earth seed idea that that Octavia like proposed in, in, in her books, right? Where it's like changing the relationship that we have to collective action. Um, and I, I, I was wondering if you could kind of speak to the way that uh, collaboration works within the guild, because I feel like they have a very interesting model that I haven't seen in any other organizations before. I would say as a guild baby, because I'm quite new to the guild, so I don't want to overstep or overspeak, but I can talk about my own experience and just what I viewed from like attending meetings or from having coffee dates with people. I think that was actually the most interesting thing is right when you join the guild, um, A, it's very intentional. You know, you know everyone who's there is there with the purpose of like healing the planet that we're on at like a very base level and doing that through, you know, communal organizing, through restructuring, through destructuring, through decentralizing, right? Through um, futurist visions, through speculative design, you know, through all these different frameworks. But again, knowing that it takes it takes all of these approaches to actually enact the big change, right? Which I think kind of brings it back to Earthsea. Like everyone has a role in the the change and the shift, right? And shift and change is the most consistent thing. So how do we participate and how do we own or hold accountability for like how we're, you know, fulfilling this promise of change? And so joining and already you know, like you get your welcome email and then it's like, okay, we're going to connect you with this person that we think you would have a great conversation with A, but could potentially partner with or collaborate with, or maybe you have intersecting um, ideas in your respective works that might be able to come together. So there could be even a bigger depth of, you know, change or action, right? And so just meeting people from different walks of life where my god like that's exactly how i think about this thing or oh i haven't thought about it that way what if we join forces and not just forces in the sense of like the type of work that you do but also organizing around um yeah like what type of material assets do we have like what do you need how can i be of service how can we combine efforts in order to really have the most impact i i just love that there's space and there's room and their support there. I think something that has made me really attracted to your work uh, is the fact that it takes a kind of similar, or in, in my opinion, a kind of similar uh, relationship with uh, like Afrofuturism or with, um, yeah, with, with Afrofuturism as like Octavia Butler, right? Where she was very explicit that she wasn't a sci-fi writer. She was very explicit that she wasn't just an Afrofuturist. It's like I'm I'm creating work that is speaking to something larger than just that. And I feel like, you know, um, th the way that you talk about the, the role that spirituality plays into into the work that you're doing, it, it feels kind of like tied into to this concept because you're still working with this concept of technology, right? Dream technology. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to, um, yeah, what your relationship to this concept of Afrofuturism might be, uh, if you find that you have a relationship to it at all, right? Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I think in the last few years, Afrofuturism has become such a buzzword 
And it was really when Black Panther came out that I think people started to recognize like, oh, Afrofuturism is a thing. And for me, it really started with Sun Ra. And it really started with Grace Jones. And it really started with Parliament Funkadelic. <laughs> like it really was, it was music for me. It was a sonic experience actually. And sonics met with visuals that imagined black folks outside, like intergalactic black folks, right? And for me, I've always been interested in um, expanding our concept of the realities of which we exist within, especially as black people, because we're already told what we can and cannot do in the perimeters of the spaces that we exist in. And so I've always been like, well, if they've already put a label on us, of like, you know, you are black, so you are this. And as black folks, you are this monolith. Then why not just get really weird and just shatter the whole thing? And that has been my forever focus in North Star. And so I've always looked to artists and creatives who have done that and built entire worlds and galaxies. So I remember seeing like old performances from parliament where they had like the mothership and like just thinking, wow, just by the gesture of building the stage, the setting, having the costuming, the concepts of the album, and it being like a groove that everyone can get into, they have opened so many people up to like, oh, I, I, I can imagine more of myself. I can be more limitless. I can play. I can be Black and I can play, you know? and not just an instrument, but I can play with my identity and how you see me or don't see me. So um, that was already kind of like my baseline, no pun intended. And then I think I actually grew up watching a lot of sci-fi and in particular loved Stargate SG-1 and just like the whole concept of interstellar travel, but tying it to like bridging timelines. So this whole concept of like ancient Egypt being the future, right? Or getting into the concept of Lemuria or Atlantis. Like I'm a, a geek when it comes to mythology. So thinking of like the ways that we make myth and that in our own family, right? Like in our ancestry and our heritage, and especially as Black folks who can only trace so much of our past, then like how might you reimagine or rebuild or myth-make your present or future or class all those things. So dreams seemed like, a, like the perfect solution to this because in my dreams, and I'm sure in all of our dreams, time is completely like thrown out the window. Um, your notion of self, other, collective, it shifts, it changes. How you may even look in your dreams is completely different. And recognizing that everyone dreams differently just made me really think of like, oh, okay, like what if we lived in a multiverse reality? Like, what would it look like if we were able to find ways to externalize how our subconscious realities are, right? And so that got me into installation and like playing with dreams. And then what got me into dream technology is this whole notion of like, okay, if we were able to externalize, you know, 
our other existences or our other realities. Like, couldn't that also be a way of creating agency for communities of color? Afrofuturism is a mothership that birthed a Cambrian explosion of Black speculative art and progressive political practice. And while we both love and respect classic and contemporary Afrofuturist art, to call everything Black and weird Afrofuturist is just incorrect and limits the growth of discourse. Putting it differently, we just heard from a number of folks that have been incredibly affected by the work of Octavia Butler, but we don't call them Octavia, do we? We call them by their own names. At a moment in between, we had dreamers, nowists, African futurists, activists, archivists, creative technologists, emergent strategists, hard scientists, future architects, multiverse explorers, Sankofa practitioners, makers, mothers, and yes, even some Afrofuturists. But those of us that did wear that title on our sleeves did it on our own terms, not from the voyeuristic distance of white academia. We dialed in from Nairobi, Abuja, Joburg, Detroit, Oakland, Berlin. So our Afrofuturists did not box blackness behind borders, but brought Black creatives from artistic communities around the world together to share our own perspectives and our own visions of and for ourselves. The common venue was built by Recurrent Labs, aka the team behind Currents.fm, a music streaming service that grew out of underground electronic music scenes across the world, featuring radical payment models like direct subscriptions and tip chains that allow financial support to blossom out naturally through creative communities. During a moment in between, even if people couldn't literally bring plates or food to the block party, they could still bring that philosophy into the space and contribute by paying artists for their creative labor. Which is why for me, it was imperative for us to have our sisters and siblings at Female Pressure represented in a moment in between. Not just because we'd have a dope lineup of feminists performing, but because they've been so active in building Currents, Common, and the community as a whole into what it is today. Like Jackie Queens community member of both Female Pressure and Currents, who organized the Female Pressure Planet during a moment in between. Hi, my name is Jackie Queens. I'm a musician and cultural worker based in Johannesburg, South Africa. I'm a singer-songwriter and house music vocalist. I run a label called Bear Electronica, which is also an agency that represents uh, women who are producers and DJs. Um, outside of that, I work within the music community or sector as you were as um, a promoter and someone who's very passionate about equality in the music industry and uh, championing um, visibility for women. In my eyes, Jackie's connection to the work of Butler comes via the community organizing line. I can sense threads of a pattern connecting her to Lauren Olamina Tug whenever she speaks on her belief that collective action is our greatest tool in pursuit of a more utopian world. This idea that there needs to be somebody leading the charge or, you know, um, being uh, at the forefront of it is, is, is in a way what, what kind of holds people back. Everybody is a part of female pressure, <laughs> you know? So um, I really like that way of working because what it does is it allows the different people in, in, in that one group, which is obviously, you know, brought together by common things, but we don't all have the same experiences. 
so for example with the with the common um that i uh, curated um you know for a moment in between that was something that i was really passionate about as in bringing african women to the space and 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 creating uh you know a, a lineup that that spoke to 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 different um cultures different types of music and and different localities right and then someone else in female pressure who can say oh i'm part of female pressure and they're doing something at another festival say in their part of the country and they can do that thing that is is important to them because i think the important thing to note is that we don't have unlimited energy and we don't have unlimited time so the more people we can get to do different things the less pressure it puts on one particular person to hold you know everything and of course it's very important to have you know um leaders at the same time we are all leaders we can all be leaders so if we decentralize it then we're like okay there's a leader here there's a leader there there's a, a leader here and there you know so we need people to know that you can do it too in as much as this is a mammoth task that we're all sort of chipping away at each person can just put their brick and so people should know that i don't have to be the ceo or director of the or whatever to actually make a difference that you can be a leader wherever you are it's just been nice to to like get into into the different um spaces that 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 common that currents actually enables like there's just so many ways in which you can just like tap in to in, into into the community and i just i just love that i just loved being able to find a group of people who are just interested in bringing people together and and working together and motivating and empowering each other um and just like thinking of 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 different ways in which we can exist as artists um it's it's given me a lot of hope and i know like spaces and communities for artists have always existed but like during covid like specifically around that time where you couldn't have that you couldn't commune with people you couldn't be in the same room with people um it was really something that that sort of helped me through that whole time just knowing that you know there's a space where you can talk to people and and like just just hang out and just and and just want to do something that has absolutely nothing to do with like money right right i i i really appreciate that that it's had that impact on you that you're able to hope for the future through that i mean i think a lot of times when we talk about currents or talk about common like we lead with this idea of like yeah it's for generating financial support but to me like what we're doing isn't about financial support it's about support broadly you know and like so much of why i feel like currents and common was able to you know how i was able to fulfill that during covid was like the fact that we were we were explicitly trying to create places for social support because it's like when the clubs closed it's not like you're just losing you know a check it's like our lives were built around like being able to interact with people in the club like socializing making friends like finding collaborators and everything so i mean but 
yeah, I, I, I really, really appreciate that you that you feel that it has had that kind of impact on you because it's like it warms my heart. That's like exactly what we were trying to create. I asked Jackie what her feelings are towards the term Afrofuturism. People would say Africa is the future, but I, I, I don't like to look at it that way. I always feel like we're the present. So then it's like this Afrofuturism that is, you know, that we're looking for. <laughs> um, it, it, it's there. It, it exists. And, and, and in a way, when I was thinking of like the actual um, theme of 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 a moment in between i was like okay like what are what are we dealing with now that is that is way beyond what we're thinking but we're not like quite seeing it yet type of thing a hundred percent yeah i mean i think this is a, a theme that it feels like it's been kind of echoed uh in the different conversations where it's like blackness is the present and the future and it's like we we are here and afrofuturism describes our our, our state of being right now and like it's like a lot of, i feel like a lot of these conversations are like we it's weird to us to have this you know this this term that was coined by a, a, a white researcher applied to us that like you know put frames it as if like we don't exist in this this timeline right now and it's like we're striving to see ourselves in the in the, in the like our entire existence is you know, wrapped around seeing ourselves in the future when it's like a lot of the, like Afrofuturism is happening now. We can see it as a vehicle or we can see it as like this thing that like it, it is being disturbing for. And I feel like a lot of these conversations are kind of positing like, no, it's a vehicle and we need to have better terminology to describe like this kind of aesthetic in a way where it doesn't make it sound like this is something far off into the future when you know we're embodying it every day yeah yeah i hear you i hear what you're saying and, I, and it's really nice to hear that other people feel that way too do you want to speak a little bit more towards like how you see the intersection between this idea of afrofuturism or african futurism and the state of electronic music right now like immediately when people talk about like afrofuturism and music i would consider like this view of it, like Western centric in a way, like the way that I was introduced to Afrofuturism, it was more like a diaspora way of thinking of like, initially it was like, oh, so this is what black people in like the UK or the, or the US or like people in, in the diaspora perceived to be like Africa, if it was more developed <laughs> or something like that was like my, naive way of thinking of it when I first heard about it you know so I think for me what what I would love to like see or like be highlighted more is like um the artists who because now I think of it more of as an aesthetic you know so the artists who engage with Afro Afrofuturism as an aesthetic um from the African continent you know um, because like you said, like, they are like, people are just doing this kind of work. They're like existing and creating in this way, but may not necessarily be thinking of it as Afrofuturism, you know, like if you, even if you just think about how, um, you know, electronic music, um, incorporates different elements 
And then if you have people who are from the African continent incorporating African instruments and African ways of singing and ways, ways of um, creating music, and then for somebody to be like, oh, that's Afrofuturistic, <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, you know, <laughs> it's like, it's, we're just here doing our thing, <laughs> you know. It might be that the conversation needs to move a little bit uh, further and, and start interrogating, you know, how each one of us um, understands or articulates Afrofuturism. Months ago, living on the other side of history, speeding like a bullet past the projected arrival date of the Afrofuture. In a digital world where we all seem to agree we were moving away from space and time, turning our attention inward to the now, as well as dimensions beyond perception, I got to enjoy a peaceful moment with our moment in between. As I live-coded a sonic pie set covering the first chapter of Butler's Parable series, I imagined an ageless Octavia tuned in behind a hacked dream mask in another realm, delighting in the fruits of her labor as she saw her dreams of Earthseed bearing fruit across the world as artists came together to support each other, not just with an outpouring of revolutionary strategy, reality-bending art, and real talk, but with real money too. I sat with her, and Lauren Olamina and Anyanwu, and I sought mourning for them, and this world being enveloped in fire and anti-blackness and endemic pandemics, and began to anticipate the fertile ground that awaits us after this age of flames that Butler prophesized all those years ago. I looked out across the multiverse and I felt hope, surrounded by a new wave of visionaries, carrying on the legacy of Afrofuturism's oracle, but marching in more directions than forward in time, yet all still oriented toward more utopian ends.